the third of the major uh, festivals was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And at this time, the people would go and live in little huts, tents they had construct to remind themselves of when they had been living in tents in the wilderness after they'd led Egypt. And again, it was another time of harvest because this was towards the end of the season when the grapes and the figs and the olives were being harvested. So you've got these three big festivals, each of which speaks about God's provision for his people. He provides them, he rescues them, brings them into freedom, and he feeds them and nourishes them. And what we see in this story is that Jesus meets this man with God's provision. And this morning, what I'd like for us, what, for us to come with is this sense of expectation for God's provision. We're going to pray for people at the end of our service this morning. If you need to know God's provision in some area of your life, we'd love to pray for you that you would experience that today. So this was the time at which this encounter happened. The place in which this encounter happened was at the Sheep Gate, the Pool of Bethesda, with these covered colonnades. And what we see is that Jesus encounters us in actual places. And this morning, we can look for, expect Jesus to encounter us here in this particular place, that Jesus can meet with us right here today. There's also a historical and symbolic significance to this place where Jesus meets the man. We're told it was by the Sheep Gate. And in the book of Nehemiah, which recounts what happened once the exiles returned from 70 years in Babylon, where they'd been carried because of their disobedience, when they returned to the city of Jerusalem and Nehemiah was leading them, Eliashib the high priest and fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the Sheep Gate. And there's a significance about the priests being the ones who built this gate, because sheep would have been brought into Jerusalem, and some of those sheep would have been taken to the temple where they would have been sacrificed. And we know from what it tells us in Leviticus 22 that the sheep who were sacrificed had to be perfect. They couldn't be in any way maimed or disabled. They had to be without defect or blemish. And so out, the sheep would have been brought to the sheep gate, and there would have been some sorting that would have gone on. The, the, there would have been sheep that would have been rejected, and others that would have gone through the sheep gate and up to the temple. And there's a sense in which this man is a bit like one of those sheep, that he is not able to go through the gate. He's stuck at the sheep gate. He's not able to enter into full participation of the life of the people of Israel because of his disability. And it might be even this morning that you have some kind of uh, resonance without yourself. It might be that you suffer from some physical infirmity, which makes it feel like you can't fully enter in to all the things that you want to. Or it might be something more emotional that you're experiencing, that maybe even this morning as you're sitting here, you don't quite feel part of what's going on. You don't quite feel in. And what we need to see is how Jesus meets with this man and brings him in and how Jesus can do that for us as well. So the, the timing of this encounter and the place of this encounter are significant. And we need to look for the, the time and the place of the Lord's provision to us. What might the Lord do right here today amongst us? What, in the next few minutes, might God do in us and through us? Next thing we see is the situation. We're told that this story happened, this encounter happened at a place where a great number of the poor and the sick gathered together, the disabled, the paralyzed, the blind, the lame. And uh, often the poor and the sick gather together. That's how the world operates. The, uh, there can be a, a tendency for the healthy and the wealthy to actually kind of deliberately 
push the poor and the sick to the places where they can't be seen. The wealthy and the healthy don't really want to see poverty and sickness. There could be a fear that you can kind of catch it and people speed past the homeless guy in the street, kind of embarrassed, not wanting to see him because there's something almost contagious about poverty and sickness. And this group of poor, sick people were huddled together at the pool of Bethesda by the sheep gate. And this pool had somehow come to assume what seems to be sort of magical properties. If you look at the Bible, it will appear on the screen as well. In our Bibles, we jump straight from verse 3 to verse 5. Verse 4 is missing, but there's a little footnote which says this, that some manuscripts include here, wholly in part, that all these people, the paralyzed, were gathered there, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease that they had. Now, it's worth noting, just as a kind of a bit of a sidebar to this message, that this is one of these things which can give us real confidence in the Scriptures. We can be really confident that the Bibles we have record what was written when it was originally written. We know that because of the number of manuscripts, ancient manuscripts we have, and the way that they correspond. And occasionally there are things where one manuscript will contain something which the other manuscripts don't. And this is one of those occasions. And in a case like that, it's not included in the main text. It's put as a footnote. And so it seems likely that actually this was included later than the original text to help us understand why the man was waiting at the pool. Because there was this belief, this story, this legend, that an angel of the Lord would stir the waters and you'd enter in, the first one to enter in got healed. It's an explanation that is given to us to, so we understand why the man was there. Whether that actually did happen, whether the waters were stirred and the first person in got healed, in a sense is neither here nor there in terms of the story of this man. The, the important thing for us is to see that this, this is what the man hoped in, this is what the man himself believed. He believed that an angel of the Lord would stir up the waters and the first person into the waters would get healed. And we still see this kind of thing in many parts of the world. There's often an association between water and healing. And there are many places in the world, kind of uh, magical places, where people will go looking for miracles, looking for healing, often associated with water. Water is very significant, very symbolic of life and cleansing and, and healing. And so you, what you have here is this crowd of marginalized people, marginalized by their sickness, by their disabilities, at the sheep gate, not able to go through, huddled together, waiting for their kind of one in a million miracle chance that maybe they'll get into the water and maybe they'll get healed. And amongst them is this man. And so let's think about the man. The story tells us that he had been in this condition for 38 years, which is a lifetime, certainly at this time when people didn't live for as long as we do. 38 years was a long, long time. There's also another connection to the Old Testament story here. We're told that when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, when God rescued them and Moses led them out in the Exodus, after they'd been in the wilderness for two years, they came to the border of the Promised Land at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they were meant to then enter into the land which God had promised them to inherit. But because of their rebellion, their lack of trust, their sin against God. They don't enter the promised land at that point and instead spend another 38 years wandering in the wilderness. 38 years they wandered in the wilderness until they entered the promised land. And for 38 years, this man had lain as a, 
disabled person at the sheep gates by the pool of Bethesda. This man is in a kind of a wilderness of his own. He's a, he's a citizen of the people of Israel, but he's disenfranchised. He hasn't been able to enter the promised land. He, he hasn't gone through the sheep gates into the city. And then Jesus appears, and Jesus asks him what might seem to be a strange question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And why is it that Jesus asks that question? And uh, the implication seems to be that actually not everybody who's sick actually does want to get well. That sometimes sickness, disability, can itself become a kind of identity onto which we can hang. And other people maybe do want to get well, but they want to get well on their own terms. The Bible tells a story about this in the book of Kings, where a powerful man called Naaman from another country is told, if you go to Israel and the prophet Elijah, you can get healed of your leprosy. And so he goes and finds the prophet Elijah, but the prophet says to him, go and wash in the river of Jordan. And Naaman says, no, I'm not going to wash in that dirty little river. I've got much better rivers back home. He, he wants to get well, but he wants to get well on his own terms. And it's only when he humbles himself and washes in the Jordan that he is cleansed from his leprosy. And so Jesus says to this man, do you want to get well? Do you really want to get well, or are you content in this place? And presumably this man had been there for many years, and his focus actually was getting in the water. He was kind of hoping hopelessly for something that was essentially superstitious, the waters being stirred and getting in the head of anybody else and being healed. And so when Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? He doesn't say, yes, I want to get well. He says, I want to get in the water. I want to get in the water. But there's always someone who gets ahead, always someone who pushes ahead of me. And I wonder if he really expected anything different after all those years. There's always somebody who was a bit less disabled than he was, who was able to barge him out of the way and get into the water before he could. It seems that this man was finding refuge with others like himself, this crowd of the sick and the poor. Maybe he'd even become comfortable in his discomforts. He was hoping hopelessly. But this day, something different was going to happen because someone different was appearing. Jesus is there. And so we see this amazing miracle. And the first question we ought to ask is, well, why was Jesus there at all? This is probably the kind of place that most people would choose to avoid. It's the kind of place that most of us would probably choose to avoid, a place where the sick and the poor gather together. I feel this way when I visit people in hospitals, which I have to do fairly often, and I'm not a huge fan of hospitals. No, some medics, that's why you become medics, you love hospitals, love the smell of disinfectant and <laughs> linoleum and blood and vomit and all that kind of stuff. You love it. And so you, but most of us, normal people, <laughs> find hospitals rather scary places. It's not a place we want to go. And if you go into a ward where there are really sick people, that can be quite an intimidating thing. And, and the healthy and the wealthy don't like to go where the poor and the sick are because you don't want to catch it. And Jesus goes to the place where the poor and the sick are. Jesus seeks out the poor and the sick. That's the kind of person Jesus is. And so Jesus at this festival, 
doesn't go where the party is, he goes where the poor are, where the sick are. And we see his incredible authority here. There's, this man is hoping hopelessly for this miracle that never happens, for the waters to get stirred by an angel and for him to be the first one to jump in and for him to receive his miracle, something that has never happened, never will happen. But then Jesus comes with a, a different kind of authority and Jesus just says three things to him. There's, there's a, a, a kind of a real lack of bedside manner recorded in Jesus' encounter with this man. He doesn't turn up and start a conversation and ask the man's symptoms and ask for his history and ask how he feels and all that kind of stuff. He just finds out that the man's been there for 38 years. Do you want to get well? Okay, get up, pick up your mat, walk. That's it. That's all Jesus does. That's all that Jesus says. And I think there's something for us to learn here, not about not having a bedside manner, but about the authority there is in the name of Jesus. I, I know myself, sometimes when I'm praying for people, who, especially for praying for the sick, it's very easy to start just multiplying words, to pray all kinds of fancy things all around the margins of the sickness. And, and part of the reason that we do that actually is, is because of a bedside manner. It's because we care about the people, and there's a, a kind of a, a pastoral, a kind of a, a therapeutic thing going on that we want to minister to the person, and so we use lots of words as we're praying for them. Sometimes also, though, I think it can be because really we don't actually believe that Jesus can speak in authority. And there's a challenge to us in this in the way that Jesus speaks to this man. Get up, pick up your mat, walk. That's it. There's no other spiritual stuff going on. There's no magical incantations. There's no long therapy session. It's just a short command, three instructions. Get up, pick up your mat, walk. I think there's a lesson there for us in how we pray for the sick. We'll pray for the sick at the end of the service. Let's pray with authority. Let's trust Jesus. We trust it to Jesus, whether people are healed or not, but we can speak with authority and confidence in his name. But this miracle leads to a confrontation because Jesus performs this miracle on a Sabbath. And some of the leaders find a man who's been healed and they say to him, the Lord, the law forbids you from carrying your mat on the Sabbath. And carrying loads on the Sabbath was especially serious. A couple of the Old Testament characters we've looked at over the last few months speak into this in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17. It says, this is what the Lord says, be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it through the gates of Jerusalem. And in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah sees people carrying loads into Jerusalem on the Sabbath and he warns them against that. And so it seems that Jesus is being especially provocative by healing this man and telling him to carry his mat on the Sabbath. But it also seems that his accusers are being especially pernickety because what Jesus has told this man to carry is his mat. It's like when you see all the, uh, uh, the yummy mummies with their yoga mats walking along. It's not exactly heavy. It's just a mat. It's not carrying a load. It's not carting a big sack of potatoes. It's not like that. It's not gonna, you don't get tired by carrying your yoga mat down for a coffee in Ashley Cross. That doesn't exhaust you. It's not carrying a big sack of stuff. And so there's something here which is a bit different. And so it seems a bit pernickety for them to be saying, you're carrying your mat. So it seems to be a bit different from what Jeremiah and Nehemiah had in mind. But the really extraordinary thing is that they ask, who told you to carry your mat rather than, who healed you? 
You'd think that the first question to ask this man who has been disabled, unable to walk for 38 years, he's suddenly walking with his mat, he's come through the sheep gate, is how are you walking and who made that happen? And they don't ask that, they say, who told you to carry your mat? The purpose of the Sabbath and all the regulations around it stretches back to the story of creation. In Genesis 2, at the end of the account of God making all things, it says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God makes all things. And then the seventh day, the Saturday, is a day when God himself rests in satisfaction and joy at the good things that he's made. And then when the people of Israel are brought out of Egypt and God through Moses gives them the law, what we would call the Ten Commandments, the longest of those Ten Commandments is about the Sabbath. It says this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What we see here is that Sabbath is good. What Sabbath is about is about rest from the tyranny of economics and labor and worldly concerns. The people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. They'd had to make bricks without straw seven days a week under harsh, tyrannical rule. God freed them from that. And part of their freedom was to enjoy a day a week where they consciously, deliberately, actively pursued rest, refreshment, fellowship with God and with one another. A day when they kind of broke the economic chains that so easily entangle us and said, we are free people, we're not slaves, we don't have to make bricks today, we don't have to carry loads today, we're free people. That's what Sabbath is meant to be about. For us today, it's the same thing. We are brought into Sabbath rest in Christ. We're brought into a place of knowing the rest and fellowship with God, and that should be reflected in our lives, that we're not slaves to the tyrannies of economics, to the tyrannies of capitalism and the market, but we're people who can step outside that at times and enjoy our freedom in Christ. But what had happened in the day of Jesus is that the people had kept the wrapping of the Sabbath, but they'd forgotten the gift. They had all these rules and regulations and laws around the Sabbath. They'd forgotten what the Sabbath is really about. The Sabbath is about us receiving mercy from God. This man had received mercy, and all they were concerned about was he was carrying his mat. And Jesus confronts that. He confronts their lack of understanding of the grace of God. There's a confrontation between their legalism and God's grace. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It was by God's grace that this man is made well. Jesus does what the man himself and his superstitions and the law were incapable of doing. Jesus ministers God's grace and speaks truth to this man, and he gets up and he walks. And Jesus is still like that today. He's still the one who ministers his grace and truth to us and amongst us. In uh, our 9.30 service, at the end I was talking to somebody who was visiting today, and he said his story was like this, that he was homeless, drug addict, on the street outside Aldi, and somebody came up to him and spoke about Jesus. Now clean, 
starting in Bible college uh, in September. Life transformed. That's what Jesus does. Come, speak grace and truth to us. Gets people up off the floor and brings them into life. Now, the really strange thing about this story is that the man doesn't know who it was who healed him. Who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Don't know. Doesn't know. Jesus, is, Jesus hasn't spent much time there. He's gone to the, to the pool of Bethesda. He's found out this man's been there for a long time. He has a 10-second conversation. Do you want to get well? Okay, get up, pick up your mat, get going. And then Jesus scoots, disappears. The man doesn't know it was Jesus. But then Jesus finds him. We see this man who has picked up his mat and he's walked and he must have walked through that sheep gate and he's gone to the temple, which is the appropriate place to go. Where should a whole sheep go? To the temple. And this man enters the temple where God's presence is and presumably he's going to worship and offer his own sacrifice to the Lord in gratitude for his healing. And Jesus finds him there, the right place, the place where he should be, the place he couldn't previously enter but now can. But what Jesus says to him, again, might strike us as a little strange, because Jesus doesn't engage again in the kind of the bedside manner thing we might expect. Jesus doesn't meet him and say, it's so good to see you. It's so good to see you walking. So great to see you carrying your own mat. What are your plans going to be now? What are you going to do with your life? It's been 38 years. You must have plans. Are you going to get a dog? Think about getting married? Maybe go on a cruise? What are you going to do? Jesus doesn't do any of that. He simply finds a man and says to him, stop sinning, or something worse might happen to you. Something worse than what? Something worse than 38 years of being disabled and lying with the sick and the poor, hopelessly hoping for a miracle to happen. Something worse than that will happen to you if you don't stop sinning. Today is our Next Generation Sunday particularly thinking about our young people, thanking God for them and praying for them. Those of us who are parents, those of us who have any role in teaching and training our young people, we need to see there are things which are more important than the important things. Things which are more important even than our kids' physical health, which we want and pray for them. Things which are more important than their education and which school they go to. Things which are more important than their sporting achievements. Things which are more important than whether they find a life partner to settle down with and have kids themselves. All those things which are good and which we want to see and which we pray for and which we bless, there's something which is more important than those things. It's stop sinning or something might, worse might happen to you. That being not in relationship with the living God is worse than 38 years of disability, shut away from society with the rest of the poor and the sick. To not know God is worse than that. And so Jesus speaks to this man and says, you've received this amazing miracle, but now walk as a good sheep should in the knowledge and the life that God provides. There's some obvious applications and things for us to respond to and receive in prayer this morning. Out of this, one is that we should pray for provision. This happens when at one of the festivals. What are the festivals about? They're about God's provision. God rescuing his people and God feeding his people. If you're this morning feeling that you need rescue or feeding, let's come to Jesus and say, Jesus, Lord of grace and truth, would you provide for me what I need today? It might be that you need actual physical healing, as happened to this man. We'd love to pray for you for that. 
and trust Jesus and see what he would do. It might be that what you really need today is forgiveness. It might be that maybe for the first time you want to come to Christ, you need to come to Christ and entrust yourself to him and walk in his way. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. And then there's a catch-all. No one escapes prayer this morning because all of us need to know more of the grace and the truth that is ours in Christ Jesus. Every one of us needs to receive again and again the abundant, abounding grace that is ours in Christ. And we need to walk in his truth. That's what we're praying for for our young people. It's so, so difficult, so challenging to grow up as a faithful disciple now in our culture. So much which pushes back against the truth. We need to pray for our kids. They would know, live in the truth. We need to pray it for ourselves that we would walk in the truth as well. So let's stand together. And I'll pray for us. I'll pray a general prayer for all of us. And then uh, later on towards the end of our service, we'll make space to pray for people specifically and personally. Let's come to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this wonderful story of your encounter with this man. And Jesus, I pray for us that we would know your grace and truth in a fresh measure this morning. We pray that for our children, for our young people, Lord, that they would be those who receive your grace at a young age and walk in your truth faithfully. And I ask that for us as well in this room. Lord, I pray that if there's provision that is needed, healing that is needed, that we might come to you and see you act with authority and power amongst us today, Lord God. Pray that we would see evidence of your working amongst us. Thank you that you're the one who heals our infirmities. You're the one who delivers us from our sins. And I pray that we would receive what we have, what we need from you, and what you have for us this day. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen.